from the get-go, our gathering has been a gathering of diversity. So if it is your background or custom to stand during the reading of God's Word, feel free to stand with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they know God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. If you're visiting, my name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor, and it's uh, part of my responsibility to explain the text. And so we're going to do that uh, this morning. In order to kind of understand the context of the text, the, one of the very smallest words uh, starts our text off for. Uh, and that means that Paul intends to build on something he previously said. That is, he's connecting uh, the passage that we have this morning that was just read to you, uh, 18 through 32, to something he just said in uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That is, uh, Paul gave us last week uh, the gospel. That's what we studied. For he's not ashamed of that gospel, for that gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God to save. 
to save everyone who believes, Jews and Greeks. For in that gospel, the righteousness that comes from God is revealed from faith for faith, that is from first to last, from person to person. And because Paul has confidence in the gospel, in fact, he says in verse 15, that's why I want to come to Rome. I want to preach the gospel to you that you might believe it and have confidence in it. But now he's going to explain why we need the gospel. That's why the four is there. In fact, there are a number of fours in this passage. It reads like an indictment. He's going to say it is because human condition has gotten this bad, the only way to fix it is the gospel. Paul gives us evidence that the world is this bad. Humanity has been so profoundly broken that it needs the gospel because he gives us a a list of evidences. You can begin to see that in verses uh, 24 all the way to verse uh, 31. They're just one evidence after another. Picture a courtroom. Paul has uh, come into the courtroom as the prosecutor. He's laid out his case in uh, verses 18 uh, through 23. And then he says, okay, let me give you evidence that everything has gone awry in 24 through 31. And the largest section in this text is on homosexual practice. That is, he's not singling it out, though it is the longest treatment on the subject of homosexuality in the entire Bible. Just these four verses. But it's the longest treatment in this text of any one of the evidences that he's putting forward to prove his case that we need the gospel. Now, let's recognize this morning there's a lot of confusion, both inside and outside the church on this subject. And then there's the context of friends. Friends of mine, friends of yours, who find themselves right here in these verses. One of my friends a a, a couple of weeks ago sent me a, a video of a young man trying out for the American Idol. Maybe you've seen him, Jeremiah Lloyd Harmon. And, and uh, this friend is a pastor who has uh, two of his four children are gay. Or at least they've come out saying that is who they are. And uh, so he sent this to kind of show me another pastor's kid, because that's Jeremiah. He's a pastor's kid. And he, the, the way American Idol is, they rope you in and pull on your heartstrings by telling you the stories of these artists, these young artists trying to make it in the music industry. And, and Jeremiah is one of them. And he grew up in the church. His dad's a pastor. And, uh, and in order to uh, get onto American Idol, he wrote a song. And the song's called Almost Heaven. And in the song, right after he comes out, his church has not um, embraced him. And so the question, the refrain and the chorus in the song is this. Is there any place for me? Is there a place that I can belong? And so 
that just complicates our discussion this morning because it's not academic. It's human. It's people we know, people we love. So I, I just want us this morning to hold on to two things. I think the, the Lord was so smart in giving us two hands. So one of the things that we can do with two hands is hold on to two things at the same time. This morning, I, I think it's important with one of our hands that we, that we remain faithful to the truth, to what the scriptures teach. And with the other hand, simultaneously welcoming all sinners into our midst. And I think if we let go of either hand, we've lost it. That is, I think we can be faithful to the scriptures and nobody hear it. That we're in a phone booth speaking to ourselves. The other is, is if we let go of the fidelity to the scriptures, we've got nothing to offer all sinners, including ourselves. And so this, this morning, I, I want it to do two, two things, really. One is I, I want us to be really clear about what the Bible teaches about homosexual behavior, homosexual identity, same-sex attraction. But then I want us to, secondly, what it would mean for us who have confidence in the gospel and the Holy Spirit to transform people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, transferring us from death to life, can welcome all sinners, all three, into our community. Before you completely uh, turn me out, let's first start with faithfulness to the scriptures. One of the things that is obvious about Jesus is whom he attracts. You ever notice that? The people that, that, that love to be around Jesus are sinners and prostitutes and lepers. And religious leaders did not. The real question as we approach what the scriptures teach is, do they want to be around us too? If we're to be Christ-like, shouldn't we also attract the very people Jesus attracted? And if not, why not? So let's delve into the scriptures. The very opening, I'm going to skip down a little bit out of the opening because I want to come back to the opening to give you the force of it. So I'm going to do the middle section where Paul is addressing behavior, not identity. That is, he's using the word relations, and I love Bible translators. I really do. It's hard work to pick the right word because you're not just picking accuracy. You're also picking people that will be reading your translation. And uh, sometimes euphemisms are used because it shocks us to know what Paul really uses here. Uh, the Bible translators, in order to talk about homosexual behavior, he calls it relations. The word relations is a euphemism for sex. And because he knows, the translators know that the audience is the church, we can handle that word. And so they just call it human relations. But he does have a description for this kind of human relations that he is talking about in verse 27. He calls it shameless acts. 
Paul's point here is not to single out any particular sin, but to indict the whole human race and that this particular sin, along with the long list I'm about to give you in verse 29 and following, is is evidence that the human race has fallen to such a state that only the gospel can save. In verse 29, along with homosexual behavior, he lists... They were filled with all manner. They are, is referring to the verses that I just uh, told you about homosexual behavior. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, and insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And then the one that we want in all student ministries, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, and ruthless. The point being is that we've got a list of acceptable sins and unacceptable sins, and we're comfortable with the acceptable ones like gossip and disobedient children, but we're uncomfortable with the ones like this one, which is homosexual behavior. And Paul Paul says, don't you understand? It is an indictment of the entire human race in which we are all members. It's not to say that one has indicted us or one has has, uh, so uh, welcomed us to the wrath of God. It's that all have. If there were only disobedient children and gossips, we would have still needed the gospel to save. And like I said, the beginning of our text, verses 18 through 23, reads like an indictment. If that's, I just read you the evidence, here's the indictment. We know that because Paul uses the same word over and over again, like if you were reading an indictment, the word for can be, a, can be read on account of or because of. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For uh, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so Paul says, because this is what you have become, let me prove it by showing you a mirror to the human race filled with all kinds of evil. If we read it like that, we don't then begin to have acceptable and unacceptable sins. We only have unacceptable ones. If we read the entire human race is condemned before God, waiting for his wrath that has been currently revealed against all sin, then the list is just evidence of what he just said. Okay, clear that hurdle. Homosexual behavior is a sin. 
just like all of those. But why? Why is it so wrong? In fact, Paul says that in verse 28, he says, what ought not be done? Why? Paul could have said, you know, God is an incredible killjoy and prude. You know, God just doesn't want you to have any fun. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, he doesn't then turn around and say that culture has really gone amok. There is a terrible lie about the ancient culture that floats around in the church about this verse. And the lie is this, that the ancient cultures did this and Paul is leaning against that culture. Yes, it was in the culture, but it was not an acceptable behavior in any ancient culture that we know of. Even when Caesar, Caligula, was performing these things, it was an unacceptable practice. Could cost you, if you didn't have position like him, your own death. It doesn't matter whether you're Greeks, it didn't matter whether you were Hebrew, it didn't matter whether you were Egyptian or you were Roman. It was not an acceptable practice. Paul is not speaking to the culture. Paul hardly ever speaks to the culture. He almost always exclusively speaks to the church because in the next chapter, he's gonna say, you do the very same things. He doesn't even appeal to the law. He doesn't say, hey, do y'all not remember Leviticus here? And all of the commands God gave against these practices? No, Paul doesn't appeal to culture. He doesn't appeal to the law. He doesn't appeal to the character of God. He just says, it's not the way things ought to be. The word he uses is, is the idea of natural relations. That is, there's a natural order to things. God has an original design for humanity. Human beings are supposed to work a particular way, the way in which I intended when I created them. And because I created human beings to have this kind of relationship only in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman, because that's what I created, then that's the natural order of things. And when you see things go out of that order, then there's disorder. There's a, a disfiguring of the original design. And so this list of sins are contrary to God's designs for humanity. When we gossip, and I know that's such an acceptable sin in the church, we are acting out of the order in which God designed humanity to be. When we tear people down, we are distorting the image of God in humanity. That's what he's talking about here about this behavior. Homosexual practice like adultery, like murder, like strife, like lying, like gossip is part of this fallen world. It is not part of the original design of, for humanity. And therefore this list of behaviors are distortions of God's design, all of them. Paul is simply answering a single question that he started in chapter, uh, in verse 18 that he won't finish until chapter three, verse 20. That's a long time to ask and answer a question. But this question is this, what is wrong with the human race? What's wrong with us? 
And this is why he says you need the gospel. Because we have distorted God's design for human beings. And the gospel is about making humanity right again. That word right is important because Paul is going to repeat this word right over and over again. And often it's going to be translated as righteousness. God will give us righteousness that makes us right with him again. Because we are wrong with God. Evidenced by our behavior. He's going to fix everything that has been broken by sin. All right, Bruce, now we've cleared that hurdle. But I was born this way. I can't remember a time when I didn't have these desires. It's who I am. It's not just simply what I do. I didn't choose this. One of, one of the other misnomers in the life of the church is that every homosexual picks this. Who would pick losing their family, their friends, and their church? Nobody consciously makes that decision. It's an implication of the decision, but it's certainly not the decision that they wanted. But they are all statements of identity. Do you hear that? We don't want to miss that. Paul never addresses identity here. He's only addressing behavior. But typically this conversation is couched and put into the context of identity because we have to talk about identity because of that. There have been literally hundreds of studies in the last hundred years on homosexuality, trying to understand it, where does it come from, what leads to that particular practice. One of the very first ones, 1948, Alfred Kinsey does an incredible study in America on sexuality. And specifically, just how many Americans have uh, been involved in homosexual practice? He stated in 1948 that in his study, it came to about 10% of America. Up before you start saying, he's not talking about identity. He can't talk about identity because in 1948, that word homosexual as an identity has not yet made it into the common culture. It's not even coined until 1868, but it doesn't become part of the common culture until the civil rights movement in the 1940s and 50s. Salk Institute does a study and tries to understand, is, is there a biological reason? Salk has been involved in this for the last uh, 30 years. In the 1990s, they did a specific study and they found that the patients that they did autopsies on after they, obviously after they died, <laughs> that their nerve cells in their brains were smaller than those that were not, were not homosexuals. What they, what they didn't or later uh, uh, came out about their study is that the, all their patients were AIDS patients. And one of the, th- the, the terrible uh, symptoms of AIDS is it shrinks your brain cells, particularly your nerve cells. It's just part of the disease. And... Then another study that I was able to look at was trying to understand, is it a learned behavior or or not? The old conversation, is it nature or nurture? And the conclusion of their their study is that a lot of it is learned, but not like you think. More like how you learned English. 
That is, you don't remember your parents sitting down and teaching you the, the, the grammar and the vocabulary. You just learned it naturally as being part of the family. And whether it's biological factors or environmental conditioning or personal choice, all these studies are unbelievably inconclusive. But even if somehow you could come up with a correlation, we know that correlation is not the same thing as causation. Even the LBGT community, if you don't know what that means, it means lesbians and gay and, and bisexual and transgender and then queer is a, a catch-all phrase. And that particular community, they're scared to death of these studies. Not as a whole, but parts of it, because they know that if you find, or they're concerned, if you find a biological cause, a gene, a DNA distortion, whatever it might be, then you might try to fix it and reject them as as human beings. So you would think that this idea that I, I was born this way allows, then they ought to do the study. Well, there's concern. It's not completely easy to accept. But the truth is, even if they found a biological cause, I think one of the things that proves is just how pervasive the fall really is. We know that. We see all kinds of breakdown of the DNA that causes all kinds of birth defects and things that happen in the life. And I'm not comparing the two. That would be horrible. But we do know that that is part of the fall. That does, it's not an accident of nature. It's not chance. It's part of the fall. But as I said, Paul doesn't address homosexual identity anywhere. You could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 1 Timothy 1.9. And in both of those places, he continues to talk about practice, not identity. The word as I said, homosexual doesn't even come, isn't even coined until a, a, a little more than 100 years ago, about 150 years ago. But just because Paul doesn't address homosexual identity, he does address identity over and over again. And, and in just a few chapters, he's going to say, you got it all wrong, Americans. When you talk about race and ethnicity the way you do, as if there are different kinds of humans, there are but you've missed the boat. There are only two. Regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of your behavior, there are only two kinds of humans. And he's going to say, it depends on who you're related to. Where do you identify with? Adam or Christ? And he says, these two humanities, the only difference between these two humanities is the gospel that is believed. That someone has been transferred from one humanity into the other humanity. Paul's point over and over again is that you and I are not to be identified by our righteousness. That's why he spends chapter 2 and, and he gets into 3 and he says, There are none righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness are but what? Filthy rags. Don't identify by your good works. But the other half is also true. We are not to be identified by our unrighteousness, our unrighteous deeds. Therefore, you're not an alcoholic Christian 
or a gay Christian or any other behavior Christian any more than you're a good Christian or a joyous Christian. You're either in Christ or not. You're either in Adam or in Christ. The only righteousness that we can claim is not our own. And therefore, you know that our behavior is evidence of our identity. It's not our identity. But Bruce, what about it then? You've laid it out. You said there, there's this wedding of this idea in churches now, and it's big debate going on, even if you're not in that blogosphere of the web right now over, is it helpful to use this idea as a self-identity of a gay Christian? There's been a conference that has created a lot of of turmoil within our denomination, when put on our denomination, it was put on by uh, Christians who were trying to have a conversation in the gay community because the church doesn't tend to have a conversation. Uh, I I mentioned at eight o'clock, it was shocking. Statistic, uh, uh, Wesley Hill did a survey in Chicago and uh, Chicago has one of the largest American uh, gay communities. And he uh, surveyed the, the gay community in Chicago, and 68% of the people that uh, 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 took this survey said they grew up in the church. Please hear that rebuke. They're not in the church anymore. Because when the, they came out, the church said, you're out. And so I, I commend people who are willing to have the conversation because most of us won't. Either because we don't feel confident enough in the gospel, or we don't feel confident enough in ourselves to have the conversation. I don't find the label helpful though because it's not very biblical. I understand people get the right to label themselves. I, I get that, but we need a common language to have a conversation We need to remember, those of us on this side that think it's unhelpful, is that labels are not the problem. Words themselves are not the problem. Paul's already told us what the problem is. My confidence, and I'm hoping it's true for you, is in the gospel. It's in the Holy Spirit to take the gospel that can take someone and transform from one humanity into the other. And so the question, can you be gay and Christian? The answer to the question is yes, you can. A couple of us were at a conference. This might help you understand what I mean by that. A couple of us were at a conference a week or so ago on racism. And the author of the book that was the focus of the conversation was Compromise, The Color of Compromise. And uh, Jamar Tisby is the writer of the book. And so they took questions from the audience. And somebody, after all, this long discussion on racism, asked him, can you be a racist and a Christian? And I, and I thought his answer was so helpful here. Yes, you can be a racist and a Christian. You just can't be a racist and Christ-like 
at the same time. You see, we're all being transformed. If we're in Christ, we're being transformed into the image of Christ by degree by degree, some at a greater pace than others, but we're all moving that direction. That's called the glory that we're all moving toward, and we're all at different spots. And so, yes, someone can self-identify as gay and still believe the gospel, but not enough, not enough to be like Christ in this area. And then all of us, if you're, if you're struggling with gossiping, you're struggling with malice or strife, yes, you can be a striver and a Christian. You just can't be Christ-like. You can, you can be a gossip and a Christian, but you can't be Christ-like and be a gossip. I think that helps us so much. And I think the name, the whole name gay Christian seems to miss our identity in Christ alone. And therefore, I don't find it very helpful. But Bruce, what, do you, what, do you, what does the scripture say about same-sex attraction? I understand it's very clear about behavior. Is it also clear about the desire. I think Paul is more clear than we tend to think. We need to give him a lot more credit because he, when we read it in English, we don't pick it up as easy if you pick it up in the Greek, which is the language that he was using. In verse 26, he uses this idea of dishonorable passions. That word for passions there that he uses even without the word dishonorable a little, a little later is a very different word than the word that he used back in 24 when he talked about lust because lust is a sin that needs to be repented of. It's epithemi, which is the word that's being translated lust there, which simply means an over-desire or a deep desire, an uncontrolled desire. Whereas the word that's being translated passion in our text here is the word pathos. Those of you, you Greek scholars out there, you know that pathos simply means desire or passion. It's not positive or negative, it just is. Now, Paul gives it a negative connotation because he puts the word dishonorable with it. And what Paul means by that is, is that yes, we have, we have sins like lust over desire that lead to all kinds of sin, fantasies and behavior that need to be repented of. But there's also behind all of that, a dishonorable desire that just simply needs to be mortified. That's an old Puritan word. I know we don't use that anymore. It means just to kill. How do you kill a desire for someone who's of your own sex? That you know that the original order, the original creation was that you would desire someone of the opposite sex. How do you, how do you kill that desire that can, can lead to epithemai, which is the over-desire, which Paul calls lust and is sin. Well, the first thing is I think you, you need to recognize that the attraction as a temptation and any fantasy or behavior that results from that is sin. And then secondly, take that attraction, that desire to the Lord and plead for grace and strength not to succumb to that temptation. Third, ask the Lord to create in you a clean heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that saves us is the same Holy Spirit that's saving us. Present tense. 
forth, plead and claim for forgiveness for all sin, both fantasy and behavior, known and unknown on account of Christ. Fifth, obey the scripture in thought, word, and deed, particularly in this matter that's a temptation. And then this is my, my favorite one. And if and when you stumble, repeat one through five. I know it sounds easy, and this is where the pastor comes in and leans in and says, look, I know this attraction, this desire, and just so you know, there are way more than you think in our church that struggle in this area. But the cost of letting you know that is so great, they live with that alone. First, I want you to know, if that is your struggle, you are not alone in two ways. One, Paul can identify with you. No, we have no idea whether Paul had this particular uh, desire, this particular pathos, but he did have something because in, in first, second Corinthians, he talks about a thorn that has been given to him that he pleads three times for God to, to take away from him, but God won't so that he won't become conceited. But to live a chaste life, mortifying this desire might be that thorn. But if you are, not only are you not alone because of Paul, but you're not alone because of us. You're not alone because we owe you. We owe you our presence, our prayer, and our love. If that is your struggle. I've been painfully made aware of the cost of this struggle recently. Young guy says, because God has chosen not to remove this desire yet, he's committed to remain chaste and therefore unmarried. Therefore, no hope of ever having someone who shares his life in the way that a husband and a wife can and potential of having children is not present. That's a a tremendous cost to remain chaste in this area while struggling with this particular temptation. And do you know that the only malediction, the only bad word ever uttered in the garden by God was about this? Everything else he said, good, good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when he got to Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's what brings us to making space in our church. What would it mean for us to to not only have all three, but encourage all three to be present with us? to remain faithful to the scriptures, to not let them go with one hand, but hold on to the other, a welcoming heart for all. These are not mutually exclusive commitments. Our confidence is the bridge in the gospel and the Holy Spirit because we know everyone needs the gospel, including those who practice homosexuality, those who identify themselves as gay and those who are attracted to the same sex. Will we have the confidence in the gospel?
Will we trust the Holy Spirit rather than us to do the transforming work? Let me ask you this. I I can see, I put up here these text questions. I see them as they come and they are filling up my box. (laughs) I understand that and I appreciate that. Let me do a couple of things as I wrap this up because I'm already over. But one of them is I wanted to illustrate why this is worth us doing and the other, what we can do. One illustration is, is from the Bible, Luke 15. We know it because it's got three beautiful parables or stories about lost things, a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son that we often call the prodigal son. What we forget is the question, the implied question that causes Jesus to share these three stories. They're all meant to go together. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the community have come to Jesus. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher. And they say, hey, rabbi, why are you eating with sinners? That's the implied question they have because they condemn him for doing it. So the implication is you shouldn't be. And so Jesus gives these three stories to explain why he's doing the most intimate thing two human beings can do outside of sex, have dinner in the ancient world. It's the most intimate thing in the ancient world two human beings can do outside of marriage, have dinner. And why is the most holy guy walking around the planet having dinner with them, the most intimate thing? And his answer is both, that's why I've come, to seek and to save that which were lost. Those that are sick are the ones that need a physician. But then he turns it on them and said, this is what you ought to be doing. It's, it's both of, this is why I came to answer their question. But then he turns it on him as Jesus often does and says, but this is what you ought to be doing. Most churches will not welcome those who struggle with same-sex attraction, much less people in the gay community into their church. And I think if there is any church in Annapolis that believes the gospel that could do that would be EP. Because we believe and have confidence in the gospel. The whole reason of having these eight testimonies weren't to introduce you to eight out of the hundreds. It was to show you, to demonstrate to you lives that are transformed by the gospel. And as our confidence is built up in the gospel, we're not threatened by those who are struggling with any kind of sin. Let me tell you what we can do. And this is the only application I'll give you because there are hundreds of them. One of the things that the church is like in Annapolis that's unlike those outside the church in Annapolis is that we're predominantly made up of families. Doesn't mean we don't have single people, but we're, which is a word I wish the church would learn to get rid of. Not singles, but the, the name single, because I think it communicates something that is unbiblical. Not just abiblical, that is, it's not in the Bible, I think the concept of singleness is unbiblical. What do I mean by that? We were all meant to be in the context of community, in the family. 
That's why God uses the metaphor that the church is a family of God. And therefore, if someone could be divorced of the family but be in the family of God, it's an oxymoron. And therefore, one of our responsibilities as families is to look around in the room for people who are not attached to families and make them family. Not just have them over for dinner, not just give them a room, but make them family. Because it is not good for man to be alone. If we really are concerned for people who struggle, particularly in this area, the greatest thing we can do besides allow them to be in the room to process the gospel is to be into our families, no matter where they are, so that they can have a context as they process these truth claims of the gospel and so that they're never alone. Can you imagine you've been struggling as long as you can remember with same-sex attraction and you're having to do it alone, except for some accountability group where you have to answer six questions. That's not bad to have accountability groups, but it's not family. I think that if we do that, it will not be easy. You will not be comfortable. But isn't it worth it to hear people call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? That's where you Baptists in the room should be saying amen. (laughs) The word amen just simply means so be it. That it's not just that we believe and proclaim the gospel, but we have confidence in it. That no matter where somebody is, that they can be respond and come into the family of God, which means into our family, and find healing. However long that may take. That's a key word. How long it may take. Well, let's go to the Lord and ask him to do that for us. Father, I thank you. I know walking through this makes us uncomfortable, holding on to two things, pulling us, makes us uncomfortable, bringing people into our inner circles, particularly our family, makes us uncomfortable. And Father, I am sure Jesus was uncomfortable on the cross. And if he is willing to do that for our sake, how can we not do this for anyone that you might bring into our community? Help us to have eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to draw out to the very people who are alone until they meet you. And often through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.